Theo now. My name is Andrew Crabtree and I'm a Roman Catholic seminarian for the Diocese of Knoxville. Uh, up until now, we've been listening to episodes that were recorded back in the summer of 2020, back during crazy COVID times. Um, but today we're live in 2022. Uh, it's early April and uh, my guest today is Thomas LaPointe. He's a seminarian, a fellow seminarian with me up here at St. Minred in Indiana. Uh, he's a seminarian from the Diocese of Mobile, in southern alabama thomas thanks for being with us today hello drew thank you for having me it's great to be here all right thomas we appreciate you spending time with us tell us a little bit about yourself where are you from and uh why alabama <laughs> well um i'm from montgomery which is the capital of alabama why alabama i guess god just smiled that day oh, no 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 <laughs> uh by the grace <laughs> of god we would say i would say most of us from the state of alabama would feel that way <laughs> Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm from, from Montgomery, grew up there, um, kind of the, the highlights real quick and we can go more in depth, um, went to the university of Alabama for college. At least I transferred there for the latter, the latter half, um, and then lived in Florida for a few years. And, uh, during some of that time, a lot of that time, actually, um, from high school to through my time in Florida, I worked for Publix. So just shy of 11 years, I worked for the Big Green P. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's that's a long time working for Publix. And we'll talk about, a little bit more about Publix later. But uh, unfortunately, one thing that I, I can't stand about Thomas, just being with him all the time and two words that come out of his mouth constantly, roll tide. It's really unfortunate, uh, but it's part of living with you, I guess. Yeah, we all have our, you know, community life is full of challenges and opportunities. <laughs> and um, one of those challenges is being subjected to people with other college football fandoms. <laughs> one of those opportunities is living around Alabama fans mm. and kind of just encountering the grace vicariously through that. Well, all I have to say to that is go Vols. Um, so tell me a little bit about your life growing up, specifically how, you know, how it connects with church, how it connects with um, you know, your, your sort of journey with God, were your parents faithful Christians? Uh, where did you experience the church life growing up? What did that look like for you? Yeah. So, um, kind of oddly, even growing up in Alabama, I was a cradle Catholic. Mm. So, um, and that's really attributed just to where my family is from. My dad's family, um, my paternal grandfather is from Maine, uh, French Canadian. Um, and so I have a long family history in Quebec. Uh, and then my mom is from New York City, so she kind of has the Irish side, um, both very uh, traditionally Catholic demographics, obviously. Um, they met in Alabama. Um, my dad grew up in Alabama. He was born there. Uh, well, he was born in, in South Georgia, actually. But um, my, he, he ended up there with my grandfather's work. And then um, my mom kind of got stuck in Alabama. She, she went down to help one of her friends uh, kind of on a medium term basis and ended up meeting my dad down there and um 
never, never left. Mm. So, um, so I grew up cradle Catholic, went to Catholic school, kindergarten through 12th grade. My parents worked very, very hard to make that possible, kind of paying tuition and everything. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. Um, it's very interesting though, because, you know, you think of the South, it's the Bible belt and Alabama, Tennessee, or kind of the buckle of the Bible belt. Right. And, um, faith in the South is something that's such an individual kind of individualized experience, um, which kind of reflects, uh, the great American value of individualism, um, which kind of Catholics, you kind of look back over the past hundred years have kind of had such a hard time integrating into American society. And I kind of attribute that, that difference of faith, um, whereas kind of more traditional Catholic enclaves, um, view faith as something that's more of a corporate level kind of experience where, you know, you come together as a parish community, you're united to a diocese, which is united to the universal church. And, um, your faith is less individualized it's, it's expressed more kind of commonly or communally. Um, and so that I think was kind of, uh, always a tension for me growing up. I grew up in this heavily private environment, although a little bit removed from that in a Catholic school setting. Um, but it is something that I was always like, I could never really articulate it until I was just reflected more, especially as a seminarian, you kind of spend time reflecting on your own past, your spiritual life and, and your, the culture of, of your diocese where you're going to go back to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can kind of talk about these things now, but at the time I really wouldn't have been able to talk about those, but that, that dynamic I think is kind of one of the key dynamics for me, um, is just that, that, that corporatized faith. And I don't mean it in terms of business corporate, but in terms of kind of the body, um, the communal body corporate. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that you grew up in uh, in Catholic schools. And so when you were in like elementary schools, you know, we hear, you know, I'm, I'm a convert. So I, I grew up Baptist. And I, so I have I sort of had like the public public school experience. Um, but you hear all the time, especially in the South uh, and well, even up here in the north uh, about nuns and, and being horrible and smacking you with rulers and all that kind of fun stuff. Was that your experience of of Catholic school? Not quite. We did not have any religious sisters, unfortunately, oh, that's um, sad. which means my knuckles are in great shape. <laughs> not necessarily hand model good, but, but they're still, they're still looking okay. <laughs> um, we did have priests though. Um, in my, um, earliest years, uh, the parish school I was at St. Bede in Montgomery had three priests mm. in the parish at one time, which is pretty much a high, a high mark. You, you don't really see that much anymore. Right. Um, so we had lots of exposure, you know, we had priests would come in, visit classrooms, talk to us and, um, you know, praise be to God. My family would go to mass every week. And so, um, and, and also I should mention my uh, grandfather, my maternal grandfather was a permanent deacon. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of kind of cultural Catholic elements, especially for somebody growing up in the South. Yeah, absolutely. When, when, if you can reach back to that time, it's hard because it's so long ago, but do you, can you think of what your experience of God was or how you thought of God back then? Yes. Um, and it's, it's really not, it's actually not that hard to imagine. (laughs) Um, maybe sadly. Um, so really for most, certainly all of my childhood, even up until Um, late college, young adulthood, really my faith life was pretty much a simple equation, a very transactional kind of exchange of like, um, I, I do believe God is real, you know, and I am, I do believe the Catholic church is the, is the true church, you know, more or less. Right. 
Um, but I, I kind of believe things are fairly arbitrary and my plan is, um, check the boxes, do what the church has asked me and then go to heaven. Mm. And there you go. You know, like, I guess God wants people to behave. So I'm game with that. You know, I'll, I'll play ball, uh, I'll behave and I'll do the things that I got to do and then I'll go to heaven. Mm. And you know, uh, maybe that means I'll miss out of some, some things on earth. That would be fun. But, um, I'll, I'll come out ahead in the long run. So this is, this is a very calculated kind of faith, yeah. right? It's, it's not something that's particularly experiential or, or whatever. It's just like, well, what's in it for me? Yeah. And so I'm willing to, you know, I'll look at it like whether it's investing or any other, any other thing where you're, you're kind of strategizing. That's, that's kind of my, my baseline approach, we'll say. Yeah. So did that continue through high school, that transactional conception of God and faith? For the most part, yeah, there was one one kind of sizable shift in high school. Um, we had a uh, a few good theology classes, and one of them was taught by a priest. It was a moral theology class, and one of the things I picked up from that class is I kind of came to understand what the church taught as something that was very reasonable. Um, and that was that was very important for me, even though it didn't make an immediate impact. I will say um, kind of that education, and I specifically think of this priest in this class, um, that could have really done a lot more to keep me Catholic in college than, than I know. Um, because, you know, you get to college and there's all kinds of options and opportunities, some good, some bad, some awful. And um, I think having this class and um, being able to think through some some of the truths of the church and how that affects the human person specifically, um, kind of talking about human nature um, and what is good for the human person and, and natural law too. Um, I was introduced to natural law and that offered a lot of explanatory power that was very, very interesting to me. Um, I guess at the time I was kind of looking for a wisdom tradition more so than a relationship with God, mm. but, um, that was, that was still useful. Um, you know, you, you kind of, I remember like just reading, looking at things, whether it's scrolling through Facebook and people will post these inspiring quotes or, or whatever, and they kind of strike you and, you know, pique your interest. And, and I'd kind of look at those and I'd be like, well, what is the, you know, this is a cool quote and this has a cool principle in it, but what is the principle behind this? Um, what, what is the principle that kind of helps sort out all this wisdom, all these wise, you know, I don't want to just be a encyclopedia of wise little quips and quotes, you know, I want something that, that these are based in. And so I kind of through, especially the end of high school, early college was kind of looking for like a, a philosophy of life in a way, um, because I wanted a way to make decisions and I wanted a way to, you know, make judgments and how do I manage my relationships with people, you know, um, and my goals for how do I set goals for my own life that will that I will not regret later on, and so um, that had been that had been um, some background things, but I wasn't I I hadn't quite connected those to Catholicism yet, believe it or not. Okay. So. Well, did that happen in college when you went down to the Godforsaken Tuscaloosa <laughs> and having to deal with elephants in crimson colors? Right. What did that look like? Because uh, I know for, for myself, college was the point where 
I really took a step back and kind of reevaluated. You know, you start getting introduced to different people, different ideas, different traditions. Um, And for me, at least, and I imagine at a really large state school such as Alabama, that all kinds of things were flooding your senses, were flood was flooding your reason, was flooding your idea streams. So, what did that look like for you? Yeah. So when I got there, um, I did make a point to look for the Catholic Church and. I would say still, though, at that point, a lot of that was um, kind of a search for community. Mm. Um, again, I was working at Publix, so I did have some community there with coworkers. But, you know, a job like that, um, people come and go, especially in a college town. So that's not always necessarily a stable source of community. Um, but I was I knew I was Catholic and my identity as a Catholic was somewhat galvanized like that. Um, being in Catholic school and a Catholic in the South, you kind of know that you're different. And so in my mind, I was Catholic. Most people were Protestants. We agreed on most things, but where we disagreed, the Catholics were right. And that was, that was simple enough for me. Um, so I went to St. Francis Parish in Tuscaloosa, and there was a very good um, student ministry there. We had a great campus minister. And uh, I would show up for things because I wanted the community. We would have like a mass and meal where we would have daily mass. We would have a meal and then we would all go play, you know, ultimate Frisbee or something. Right. And so I met a lot of friends um, and and most of my friends in college were were Catholic. Um, you know, there's a lot going on at kind of public state schools. Um, I was never really cut out for Greek life um, in maybe a lot of ways. Um but, uh, I, I, you know, everybody, I think, uh, in college is looking for community of some sorts. And I, I kind of happened to luck out. I mean, it wasn't entirely random, right? Um, like, I had an identity going into it. But, but um, the faith at that, at that role, in that, at that place, in that time, played kind of a role of uh, provider of community. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is kind of bit by bit, kind of God, yeah. looking back in hindsight, God doing small things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, coming up after college, there's a huge transition, right? For everybody moving into work life or, or what have you, but for you, you moved into work life. You were working at Publix before you, you mentioned, I'm guessing you were like, what bag boy or something like that. Well, I, I started as a cashier and I was right. customer service staff. So, okay. you know, I'm getting a little big for yeah. my britches, but, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, you know, I, I actually, um, I did a lot of stuff in the cash office mm-hmm. and, um, kind of a lot of the kind of bookkeeping stuff. Um, but also, also at the customer service desk. Okay. And then so. did you continue that work after college? Um, for about a year, yes. For about a year. Okay. Yeah. So what were your plans moving out of college, moving into life? Was it priesthood? Was it the seminary? Was that your uh, initial thought? It was absolutely not priesthood. <laughs> um, so uh, I just want to back up for just a second. Yeah, absolutely. In, in college, I was dating a girl and uh, who was not Catholic. She was really Baptist, but kind of a heavily Reformed theology, um, kind of heavily Calvinist. And, um, we would date and break up over religion and date and break up and, and kind of get back together. And which in hindsight is, is a little silly. Um, but at the time it seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, and I, I wanted to make it work. So, um, we eventually, we eventually broke up over one summer and I just knew that when we got back in the fall, we were going to start this pattern all over again. And so I started doing a lot of research um, about the Catholic faith because I knew, you know, again, my identity as a Catholic was strong enough to want to maintain that part of my life. But And I find that really fascinating. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, sure. I, I just find that really fascinating that that though you don't really have, as you mentioned before, kind of this conception of a relationship 
um, per se with God. I mean, I'm sure that was growing, like you said, over time, but you still had this fundamental thing within you that you were like, yeah, I want to be Catholic. Like that was a firm part of your identity. And even when you, you know, you weren't thinking about priesthood, you weren't, you know, uh, at the highest echelons of thought regarding theology, you know, you are still fundamentally Catholic and that dictated even how your relationships were going in college. It is, it is interesting. And, um, I guess looking back, I do have to give myself some kind of credit. Um, but it, it is, you know, we were, we were pretty serious and we, you know, we talked about, well, how would we raise children and stuff? And, you know, I'm, I'm 20, 21, 22, and she's 19 at this age. So, uh, pretty young, actually probably more serious than a lot of people that age, I guess. Um, and that was kind of the defining issue of our relationship. And, uh, I, I just knew again, the faith for me, um, it was a part of who I was and some of it was the historical aspect of it, right? Like I had been through Catholic school. And so even though I couldn't articulate a clear history of the reformation, um, and some of the theological happenings and consequences of the reformation, I knew that the Catholic church was the one that Jesus founded. And I knew that the apostles were you know real and we i knew that we had apostolic succession and i knew that i knew what the eucharist was at least intellectually um and i knew it was a big deal uh so so there were things that were kind of non-negotiable for me uh even though i i didn't they were kind of intellectually non-negotiable like i, I knew i couldn't leave the church because that just wasn't going to help me get to heaven, I guess, if you could say. So you could honestly still look at it at a, a kind of a self-serving <laughs> lens if you wanted to. Um, I'm probably guilty of that. But uh, so, yeah, that was that was definitely there. Um, it was definitely a factor. Um, well, good. So, uh, OK, so you had this relationship and you're moving out of college. Um, so what you said, you weren't looking to be a priest immediately out of college. So what were you looking to do? Right. So I really um, I had I had started working for Publix in high school. So this is about five years, six years after that. Um, my, uh, my lease in Tuscaloosa ran out uh, and I was looking for a job and I didn't want to sign another one year lease because if I got hired in two months, you know, what do you do with a, a year lease at that point um, other than pay a lot of money one way or another. So I moved back home to Montgomery with my parents and I uh, transferred back to the, the store I was working at where I got hired <laughs> as a 17 year old doing mostly the same kind of work <laughs> as I was doing when I was about 18, uh, about four years prior. So, um, yeah, that was, that was tough. That was tough, especially as that, as that time went on, um, you know, you come out with this fresh college degree and you kind of think you're hot stuff. And then you go back to the same store you were working at before you even started college. Um, so there's a, you know, whereas some of your college classmates are going off and, and making good money, you know, um, I was an operations management major. So some of my classmates are working for, you know, suppliers for Mercedes and, you know, uh, stuff like that in Alabama or Atlanta or something. So, so what'd you do? So, um, I, well, for a while, I, uh, I, I did my thing at Publix and I, I worked on a plan to change it. Um, I set my sights on the corporate office, uh, which is in Lakeland, Florida. And, um, I figured out I did want to work for Publix. The benefits are very good. The stock is very good. 
Um, my plan at this point, like general life strategy is I wanted to be married and I wanted to have a family. Um, I didn't really want anything extravagant. I just wanted to be a good husband and a good father. And I just really wanted a quiet life and quiet existence. And, um, just to be kind of a, I, I, again, kind of looking back, I would kind of say a kind of a very simple kind of virtuous, hopefully person that kind of just does things right. And, um, again, makes it into heaven. Um, but, but is happy, you know, mm-hmm. so kind of, I just really wanted to be kind of simple and be happy being simple and, and holy and, you know, hopefully have a big family and, um, you know, just, just, yeah, have, have that, have that big family life, but, um, just kind of enjoy that simply. So, well, fast forward, what, five, six years down the road and we're sitting here making a podcast, you're wearing a collar and we're on the cusp of an ordination to the diaconate where you're going to make a promise of celibacy. So I'm guessing that the family uh, conception of life did not work out for you. Yeah, something has changed. So so how did that journey begin? So um, I wasn't thinking about priesthood for quite some time, even after moving to Florida. I'd go on dates and, um, again, really try to work on my career. Uh, there was a girl who I was very interested in. She was coming into the church, and I got to know her. I was introduced by a mutual friend. And, um, really kind of wanted to pursue a relationship there and, um, started getting, started talking to her and things seemed to be going well. And, uh, I was about 26 at the time and it never really got off the ground. And, and, and this one hit me kind of particularly hard. And I remember kind of taking this to prayer. Uh, I ended up in mass on Ash Wednesday uh, in, I think it was 2016 and I was in Lakeland and, um, really just after communion, I was back in my pew and praying and I was kind of just pouring my heart out to the Lord and really kind of complaining more than anything else. <laughs> uh, you know, like, Lord, here I am. I'm 26 years old. I'll be 27 later this year. And, uh, all my, all my high school classmates are, are like getting married. They're having kids, they're buying houses. They're, they're having careers. They've got great jobs. And, and I'm, I'm very grateful for what I've got, but at the same time, like I wanted more, like my job was, was fine. It was a, it was a decent job, but it wasn't like a career job. You know, it was kind of still entry level. I wasn't, I wasn't dating anyone. This, this, what, uh, relationship, which I hoped would pan out did not. Um, I was in an apartment, which was kind of a dump, it, truly a dump. <laughs> and, uh, I was just kind of pouring myself out like, Lord, you set all this up and, and, and the, the things that the stars that aligned for me to move down to Florida and have a job down there really were, were pretty incredible. And so having had that experience and, and having, you know, kind of been halfway there, but not all the way there, like, you know, God, come on, what's it going to take? Like, I, you know, I feel like I'm, uh, w- one of the things that was most kind of painful for me is like, I had been working so hard to be like a good man and a, and a, you know, a good father, a good husband that I felt like, I was that time, you know, those years where I wasn't dating and being married and having kids were like being wasted. And and so that was the most confusing part of it. It was like, God, like I'm working so hard at this and I ha it hasn't happened yet. And like, why are you letting these years go to waste? That that was really kind of the heart of it. Um, there's a lot to, there's a lot there, but that was, I would say, if you could reduce it, distill it down the most, that was kind of the, 
the core of the issue for me. Hmm. Um, and so in the midst of that, literally in that moment, I just had an idea in my mind that just popped in there and I, I can't, I have no idea how to, other than just to say it was from the Holy Spirit. I just had like a certain knowledge that came to me that said, I was made to be a priest. And I had never thought about that before. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I had like intellectually thought like, oh, you know, I'm a Catholic male. You grow up in a Catholic school. Yes, you could be a priest. But it had never been something that I had really deeply considered before because I didn't really want to consider it. I never had an impetus to, to consider it. Um, and even though at the time I had a friend who was a seminarian for the diocese of Orlando and I had visited him in his seminary, he was going in Miami at St. John Vianney. So I had visited him and, and, um, even went kind of on a come and see weekend, um, just to make, uh, I was helping a youth minister in the nearby town of Winterhaven who had been a seminarian and he was friends with the vocation director for Orlando. And so he convinced me to go. And I kind of went just for a free weekend trip to Miami. I had never been. I don't know if a seminary is truly representative of a weekend in Miami. <laughs> I don't think so. But that was my experience <laughs> of it. Um, but I had a great weekend, and I remember coming back on the bus, um, this little little bus we were on, and I was just thinking to myself, like, "Wow, oh, wow, Lord, thank you so much for that that great weekend. Uh, I really got to meet some great guys down there, and." I really feel inspired to do something for those seminarians. Maybe when I make a lot of money at Publix, like I'll, <laughs> I'll donate money and buy cassocks or textbooks or, or something like that. So in terms of vocations, that's what I thought mine was, was to go back to Publix, make a lot of money, and then, you know, be, be very um, generous with that. Yeah. So. Well, so you're sitting on a back pew. You've, you've heard the Holy Spirit, you know, speak into your heart. You were made to be a priest. So what's the next step? What do you do? panic yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, um it was not a it was not a fun feeling um it really was it was difficult to accept um but what's kind of crazy because so i had just spent the last about five years of my life focusing on getting where i was and even though i wasn't where i wanted to be yet i was like well on my way and so the the idea of changing course meant leaving all of that, like taking all of that I had just done and just like in it, what it felt like at the time, just pouring it down the drain, mm -hmm. just utterly just disposing of it. And, and that was, that was about, you know, again, five years of solid planning and preparation and, you know, finding furniture on Facebook marketplace and Craigslist and, and networking and cover letters and resumes and, and leases and, you know, all of that I had, you know, was finally on my own paying bills in my own name and, you know, <clears throat> do just making my own adult decisions. And that the thought of just like throwing all that away was just kind of sickening, mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, it was, it was very scary. So, yeah. so did you, I mean, you know, the vocation directors just don't kind of reach out and call you and say, you know, I feel like this guy could be a good priest. At some point you had to make a leap of faith, right? At some point you needed to step out and say, okay, I'm throwing all this down the drain, but maybe, you know, God really does want me to do this. Maybe I should try it. What? So I, again, growing up Catholic did benefit me in, in another way of, um, I had heard vocation stories before, probably at least half a dozen vocation stories. And one of the common themes that tends to pop up 
his guys experience a call to the priesthood and they run from it. And, and it was always priests telling these stories. So you know how that, you know how that works out. Just like Jonah. Um, exactly. God loves a reluctant prophet. Right. Um, and so in the back of my mind, even though I, I, I didn't really want this call, I knew that I would not do myself any favors by running from it. And I'm a practical guy. If that hasn't come out so far in the story, <laughs> like I'm a very practical kind of, you know, systematic methodical thinker. Um, and so I'm weighing what kind of trying to weigh all this out. And, and so I was like, gosh, like I just need to pray about this because I think I have this thing and I really don't want it, but there's no getting rid of it in a sense. Not that I couldn't deny it. I could have, and I could have run from it. But I knew that if it was genuine and authentic, I wouldn't be happy if I ran from it. Um, so it, it kind of came down to that is I think God might be giving this thing to me, even though I don't want it, I got to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. And, and that's going to take a lot of prayer and a lot of surrender and a whole lot of things I wasn't really prepared to do yet. Um, so I, uh, I started talking to some people, to some priests. I did call the vocation director for Orlando. Um, uh, actually the day after Ash Wednesday, I called him that morning and I was like, father, <laughs> I think we need to talk. <laughs> and I kind of told him about my experience, um, on Ash Wednesday and, um, started working with him a little bit. Okay. So, but that was in Orlando, but now you're studying for the Archdiocese of Mobile. That's right. So, so, um, I moved down to Florida to work for Publix. Um, and I love the city of Lakeland. It's a great town. Um, Polk County is wonderful, but I did not feel at home kind of in the diocese outside of Lakeland. Um, the city of Orlando is very big. It's not a culture that is very familiar to somebody growing up in Montgomery. And um, I just knew I, uh, so the, a couple years prior, um, I was, when I was about 24 years old, I actually started thinking about retirement and what I would do <laughs> when I retire because I'm a dork and I, <laughs> I, I wear that, that proudly. Um, and so I was like, okay, I like the beach. I love the state of Alabama and I like history and I like architecture and Florida has a lot of the beaches, a lot of beach in Florida, but not as much history, not as much architecture and it, and the culture was different from Alabama. And so I was thinking like, well, where should I go? And, and it, it actually kind of dawned upon me like, oh, maybe Mobile, Mobile would be cool. I had been to Mobile like four times in my life, and some of those were driving through. <laughs> I did. I had no real knowledge of Mobile, but it seemed to like check all the boxes from what I knew of it. You know, Mardi Gras, and and um, it's old. Um, so so I was like, oh, maybe Mobile. So when I started discerning, uh, Mobile just came up. It's it's the diocese which I grew up in, um, and it's most of the you know most of the Catholic population is in the city of Mobile. So obviously good shot that I end up there. Um, and my family is there very important to me. So I just knew, I just knew that mobile would be the place, the, really the only place that would make sense for me to be a priest. Mm -hmm. Not that others would be, you know, crazy, but the diocesan priesthood is really truly a charism to a place. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, 
it makes sense for me. Absolutely. So you've made your way to Mobile, and the illustrious Archbishop Rhodey has decided to accept you as a seminarian and send you up to the middle of nowhere, Indiana. That's right. Beautiful southern Indiana. Why? <laughs> well, we have a good relationship um, with St. Meinrad in, in the Archdiocese, uh, and actually there's a very interesting story about that. Back when Archbishop Rhodey was the Bishop of Biloxi, um, in 2005, Hurricane Katrina came through New Orleans, and his seminarians were at Notre Dame in New Orleans, which had to close after Katrina came through. And so he made some phone calls. He tried to find seminaries to take them, and no one would take the entire group of guys he had. Everyone would take, oh, we'll take one, we'll take two, you know, but he wanted to keep them all together, which is a huge, a huge thing to credit him for. Um, living the, the life of fraternity of a diocese. It's great to have all of the mobile seminarians here, mm. at least in, in theology. Um, <clears throat> and so he called Meinrid and they said, just send them, we'll take them all, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll put them all on a scholarship for this year. Mm. And he said, well, it's kind of cold up there. I don't, know if these, I don't know if they have the right kind of outerwear and jackets. And they said, we'll buy him a jacket. And he said, sold. <laughs> <laughs> so Meinrad took all the Biloxi seminarians, bought winter jackets for him, and educated him, fed him, housed him for free for, for that school year. Wow. And so Archbishop Rhodey, valuing loyalty as he does, has been sending to seminarians to Meinrad ever since. Well, I think that's really a, a testament to St. Meinrad. I mean, um, I know that you have a great love for this place. I have a great love for this place. What is it about St. Meinrad that makes it special? I mean... Um, obviously doing something as significant as that after Katrina, but what makes it special to you? Uh, there's a lot of things. Uh, I think probably primarily is the Benedictine charism. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot you can, when you kind of evaluate seminaries, there's untold number of variables you can consider. Um, but what stands out to me at St. Minor the most, having kind of the Benedictine charism behind it, you have uh, the value of stability which is something that is very meaningful to me. Um, I have a spiritual director who's a monk, and, and some people would say, oh, well, you're a diocesan seminarian. You should have a diocesan you know, spiritual director. Well, I'm not looking to really have a connection to what's going on outside as much as I am inside, you know, internally, spiritually. And so who better than a monk to be your spiritual director for a diocesan priest? I'll, I'm, I'm a practical guy. I can handle the stuff outside. It's the stuff inside that I need help with, you know. <laughs> Um, so having that, having kind of the continuity of formation staff throughout the years, um, instead of, instead of, uh, like a diocesan seminary where you have formators come in every three or four years, you know, you have a new maybe rector or who knows what it is every so often that's going to change direction and kind of change strategy. Um, here we have a very coherent kind of cohesive vision of formation and because we do have the right people, um, it works out very well. Uh, it's it's something where you can kind of get into a program of formation. Um, St. Minard has a good philosophy of formation where it kind of, okay, who is this person? Who is God calling this person to be? It's not a cookie cutter where everybody fits in the same mold of a priest. Priests are unique. You know, people are unique. So accordingly, priests are unique. And um, each one has strengths and weaknesses. And, and God is calling them to, to use those in an individual way um, for his glory. And it's a beautiful thing to be at a place that respects that and, and actively tries to develop that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how, how have you changed since beginning your seminary studies up here? 
Uh, I would say I've matured a lot. And so I, I would say there's growth, but also kind of healing. Um, and even though, I mean, again, thanks be to God, I came from a very stable family, a very healthy family. Um, we all have things going on that need healing in our lives. Um, I really didn't have a lot of self-confidence. And that's something that's kind of been a story of, of me maturing, but but even especially kind of a feature of of my time here at St. Meinrad. Um, you know, when I was when I was a kid, I'd get picked on and I was never like the popular kid. I was never I was never the most outcast, never like the kind of the the weirdo or the freak, but I was I was never I was never popular. I was always kind of kind of straddling that that line between like kind of normal and kind of outcast and, and whatever. And so I'd always look for kind of other people for my identity and like, well, what am I interested in? Well, what are my friends interested in? You know? Um, so I always kind of tended to gravitate towards people who were kind of fairly influential and, 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 you know, had strong opinions and I kind of would take those on and, and whatever. And, um, it just through kind of prayer and spiritual direction, those kind of wounds have kind of begun to heal. Um, and, and I've kind of been just more confident in who I am, but, but confident in that God has given me the personality and the strengths and the gifts to be a good priest and to do ministry and, uh, just everything like that. That's beautiful. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. You know, everybody comes to seminary with a different background. Everybody's widely varied and how they were brought up. You know, some people had really close knit homes, other people, you know, broken families. Everybody has something like you said that needs to be healed and worked on. And uh, Minor does a fantastic job here of, of taking people and, um, you know, bringing them to where God wants them to be um, to the best of their ability. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, right now I want to move in a little bit to some, just some spiritual questions for you. Sure. Um, you know, first of all, you know, we're, we're here surrounded by beautiful architectures, surrounded by beautiful art, um, music. Right now there's a new organ being put into St. Thomas Aquinas Chapel, which is amazing. Um, you know, we're surrounded by liturgy and theology and philosophy and, and community and monks um, and lay people who are helping working in development in the business office. How is it, though, that within this world, within this um you know, this microcosm of, of, of the world. How is it that you experience God in your daily life here? Um, a lot of it is, well, there's a lot of ways. Um, I mean, you, you obviously have the sacraments, right? But, but, um, in many, many ways through, through relationships, um, we're blessed. I'm, I mean, we're blessed to have great classmates and great seminarian brothers. Um, but we also have great formation staff and, and the coworkers, who work here, uh, which is the name we kind of call other others would say employees, but we kind of call them coworkers um, who work with us in the seminary. Um, I've gotten to know many, many, many of them, um, which has been a blessing. Um, they're kind of the only normal people here on the hill, <laughs> in a way. You know, we're all in a in a formation program or already ordained and 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 celibate, and you know, we're we're studying something that most people, well, don't always think about, you know, we, and we use words like eschatology mm. and, you know, <laughs> and, and, and that's not, this is not a normal life. Seminary is not a normal life. And so our coworkers are, are fantastic and they are normal people working normal jobs <laughs> and normal families. And I mean, I came out of the real world. I wasn't, I wasn't born in a priest factory. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that would look like, but, um, so, uh, but I, I also didn't come into seminary straight out of high school, right? So I had kind of experience in the real world and had friends and stuff. So, so for me to be able to spend some time with people who are normal is refreshing. Yeah. 
<laughs> not that I not that I don't love everybody here. I yeah. do, but and and you know, but you just I love to talk about liturgy, but you can't talk about liturgy sure. all the time. Sure. Or church politics. So or, how is it that you see God in those other people? How is it that that is that is an experience of God for you? Um it's really kind of through the common life together. Um I I mean the people around us are part of the body of Christ yeah. and, and you kind of see that care and that concern that we kind of share towards each other. And that's just a very beautiful thing. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's just very beautiful to kind of, um, have kind of lives in common and, um, kind of experience the joys and sorrows and stresses and, and things of community life and kind of, kind of that, that, that just community aspect. Yeah. In a similar vein, what is it that God is doing in your life right now? What is it that you're taking to prayer? What is it that, you know, you're contemplating in Lexio or at Adoration? What is it that uh, God's working on? Yeah, so one of the things that I've kind of noticed is is kind of just little confirmations um, mm-hmm. of that I'm supposed to be here yeah. where I am. Um, you know, you enter seminary and it's it's surreal in a way you know you kind of know what the finished product is right the the priesthood but this the you know specificities of how you get there even if the plan is laid out it's still very surreal mm-hmm. and, and so i remember um even halfway three years into seminary i'm starting homiletics classes and i'm you know again halfway done with seminary and thinking like how in the heck am I going to preach? What, what, what I, what do I have to say that people want slash even need to hear? You know, how do I preach the word of God? Um, but these things happen, you know, you, you start hacking away at it, you pray, you work hard and trust. And all of a sudden, you know, you're writing homilies and, and you're getting good feedback and you're just like, wow, I guess it's happening. Um, but, but you know, I'll, I'll have conversations with people. They'll be very fruitful for me and for them. And, and things will go well, you know, at your ministry site, we'll go out to ministry once a week and, and you'll have really good encounters. And, um, you just kind of get these little confirmations sometimes, which are, which are great. And, and quite honestly, it's important to me because it, it provides a lot of peace. Mm. Um, and, and when you're experiencing peace, generally, spiritually, you're in a good place. Um, when you, when you don't have that anxiety. Um, when you when you're finding peace, that's that's very important. Yeah, absolutely. So now that we're that we're both on this cusp of ordination to the diaconate, I think yours is June fourth. Uh, congratulations, early. Thank you. And um, likewise, thank you. Uh, I th- I I think a lot of my time, especially, has been caught up in in thinking. Okay, here I am, about to be a cleric. I'm about to be some semblance of an authority. Uh, you know. Uh, type figure in the church what is it that you consider sort of a fundamental pastoral key that that's going to shape you um, after ordination yeah so um for me and and uh i i I really i think relationship um Mm. is the key for me um i'm a fairly extroverted person and that's not everybody um you know god gives gifts out in different ways to different people for me i'm an i'm an extrovert not a not a massive extrovert there are some people who far exceed what i've got but um i feel like i have that kind of um that calling that gift to kind of bring bring people together um 
I used to, it's funny, I used to be a very shy person. I was an extremely shy kid. And then I worked in customer service for about 11 years. Mm-hmm. Well, I worked in retail for seven years. Um, and so your personality changes when, you, when you're thrust into that environment. Um, and so that, that background of customer service taught me how to kind of empathize and kind of just communicate with people and read facial expressions and, and kind of communicate. And, um, it really helped me hone those skills and it made me a people person where I used to not be a people person. So, or at least I was a shy person. So, um, for me, um, you know, we can talk about the faith on an intellectual level and that's been a lot of my encounter with it. So I don't want to bash that at all, but ultimately, um, I think for the large majority of people, the intellectual side of religion is not the captivating part. Um, you know, uh, Balthazar says love alone is credible. I think there's, I think he's onto something there. (laughs) Um, and, and so to kind of pastor a community in a way that feels loved to, that feels that God loves them, that other people love them and that they can find community in that. I think that's very important. Um, practicing the faith is something that's good for us, whether we, kind of understand it or not um or to what kind of degree we understand it intellectually or not um some people are there for have very beautiful spiritualities and academic intellectual lives and they know exactly what they're doing and they could you know give a dissertation on the eucharist some people don't and at, at some at some level it doesn't matter you know they're both there and it's good that both of them are there some of them may may only be there for kind of like I was, you know, they're just there to check the boxes um, and they just want to get to heaven. Well, okay, maybe there are better motivations, but they're still there. They're still in the pews yep. and God still loves them. And they, and, you know, God is still thirsting for an encounter with that person. Yep. And so I want to be the guy to facilitate that, yep. you know, and that's going to look different for everybody. And to kind of do that well, you have to treat everybody with respect to who they are. And so that's really kind of what I kind of hunger for, um, is to, is to, to help to, to do that. So, yeah. well, I, th- I think that that's, that's a beautiful purpose, the idea of encounter of the other, um, and, and bring them all. I think that's going to serve you very well in pastoral ministry. And I have every faith in you as a, as a deacon and, and God willing, a priest in a year or so, so. Uh, but I have to admit that I had an ulterior motive for asking you to come on the show, Thomas. Um, the audience wouldn't know this, of course, but we have an assignment for one of our classes that I have happened to make into an opportunity to record this episode. So um, I like to tag team things when I can. But so Thomas and I, uh, you know, we often get into conversations in our lounge, which conveniently is right next door to my room where we discuss theological, economic, political, social topics, you know, and sometimes we'll talk for hours and hours and hours and people will get mad and leave and come back and leave and come back. We put snacks in there uh, to make sure that we stay awake while we're having these conversations. But uh, I'm sure at one time or another we've addressed this topic that I'm about to bring up, or at least close to it, uh, something similar. But I wanted to take this opportunity to discuss it here. It really kind of fits into the aesthetic of the show and what you were talking about, um, because it revolves around the idea of encounter with the other, uh, moving and living outside of yourself for others and on behalf of others. So uh, over the last hundred years and even beyond, there have been 
you know, incredible developments in communication, just like this. I mean, we have we have a podcast here, and I'm going to be sending this out over the digital web, which people will be able to access and download and listen to at their will. Um, but there's been other developments in like rapid transportation that allows us to communicate, you know, essentially instantaneously all the way across the globe. You know, examples like Facebook and TikTok, um, basic things like email and WhatsApp, Zoom, WebEx, Twitter, you name it. Um, really, for the first time ever we're able to communicate and establish, you know, relationships with people on the other side of the world. Um, you, here at MindRed, like we were talking earlier about our classmates, we have great classmates. Um, you know, we have a significant amount of international students. Um, even in our class, you know, we have guys from Vietnam and Tanzania uh, and the Bahamas, rise up, Dev. Um, I look forward to the time, you know, when I'll be able to chat with those guys uh, for homily ideas or whatever from the other side of the earth. You know, I'd love to be able to call Hung um, in Vietnam one day and be like, Hung, I know, you know, we're going to be talking about, um, you know, the man born blind. You know, what are you going to talk about? And he'll be able to tell me all the way from Vietnam. I find that really exciting to do. But this connectedness has been able um, to highlight a significant aspect of Catholic social teaching that's often used, you know, typically as a, as a buzzword. It doesn't really get us excited. It's just something that that is that is talked about. Um, and but that that topic is solidarity. Um, and solidarity is a complicated word, and it has a lot of different contexts. For example, I just did a quick Google search um, the other day uh, for solidarity, and there's a YouTube channel um, with that name uh, that apparently is focused on Minecraft content, which is completely random. There's also a Polish trade union called Solidarity. Um, there's a community credit union here in Indiana that's called Solidarity. Uh, and there's an organization here in the United States which seems to be very, um, I don't know, a bunch of characters, we'll put it that way. Um, and their self-proclamation is, we're a socialist, feminist, anti-racist organization called Solidarity. Okay. Well, um, though some of those, you know, they're not too far off from what we want to discuss regarding Solidarity, except maybe the Minecraft, of course. Uh, I want to briefly look at the Catholic Church's Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. This is a document that was put out uh, a few years back. Um, and in there it says, that solidarity highlights in a particular way the intrinsic social nature of the human person, the equality of all in dignity and rights, and the common path of individuals and peoples towards an ever more committed unity. Okay, now, the, you know, this document uh, is definitely known for its extreme clarity, um, and I honestly have no idea what I just said. So, um, but for the sake of myself who did not understand what in the world did I just say? What was I reading? Can you please illuminate for me just a little bit more about what solidarity even is? Of course. So <laughs> why, did, why didn't you ask? You should have just asked. Um, when we talk about solidarity, uh, keep in mind kind of basic connection with the whole human family. All right. So, um, and it's, this is something that's rooted in human dignity. So we're created in God's likeness and image. You know, Christ took on our very humanity. Um, there's value to the human person, which is again, rooted in that human dignity. And we all are interdependent on each other, you know, as, as human, the human family, um, we came from God in our creation and we support each other. And so when we talk about solid solidarity, we kind of talk about an interdependence of human of humanity 
Um, and, and with that, you know, we have an, an equality that comes by the nature of our creation. You know, God created us good. And so, um, we're called to a, a certain unity in that, right? Um, and, and as part of that, you know, we, we are kind of a pilgrim people on our way to heaven. Um, we want everybody to get there. We want the whole body to get there. Um, so there's a, a unity in that. We, we want to protect the weak. We want to protect the vulnerable. Um, so it's, it's really a, a commitment to the common good mm. overall. Yeah. Um, yeah, a commitment to the common good. Yeah, I think that, you know, that's great. Um, let, me, let, me, let me bounce a real-world example off of you just because, you know, that's kind of talking about it in the abstract. Um, but sometimes, you know, getting down to the particulars or a, a specific example helps me uh, get some of these ideas um, more concretized into my mind. Um, so for those of you who are, who are listening, you know, we're recording this episode at the beginning of April 2022, like I said at the beginning of the podcast. Um, and Russia began an invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, so a little bit over a month ago. Um, and it's it's been horrendous to to watch. Um, you know, I I know me and Thomas both we we watch the news. We really care, you know, about this kind of stuff. And it's it's horrible to see some of the stuff that's coming out of uh, Ukraine. Uh, the humanitarian toll specifically has been you know extreme. The UN uh, is conservatively estimating that around 1,100 civilians have been killed. Um, but the Assistant Secretary General for Human Affairs has recently stated that the death toll is probably much higher than that, uh, and that the most heavily bombarded areas by Russia, like Mariupol uh, and some of those other locations in the east, are you know they're they're inaccessible uh, because of the continual bombardment and fighting that's going on there, and so it's it's impossible to verify the casualties that are happening. I know today I just saw a couple headlines that came out of. Um, some of the um, some of the locations that uh, the Ukrainian forces have um, um, have taken back over, they've found some mass graves and um, just some horrendous things that are taking place that we don't know about yet and won't fully know until this this conflict is over. Um, but you know, hospitals and homes and schools and shelters have all been bombed. They've all been attacked, and in some neighborhoods. Uh, according to the UN um, Assistant Secretary General for Human Affairs, in some of these neighborhoods, it's not even safe to bury the dead. Um, so at this point, more than 10 million people have fled their homes. More than half of all the children in Ukraine are included in that number. Uh, and about 6.5 million of those are displaced within the country of Ukraine. Many of them have moved west to the Lviv region. Um, while the remainder have fled the country, many of those have gone into Poland and Romania and, and beyond. Uh, I know that the UK has talked about bringing some some people in to, to house um, with general um, citizens there. So a, a, a very impressive um, aspect of solidarity there. Um, Thomas, I know I know that this is a big question, but how does solidarity play into this situation that we're dealing with today in Ukraine? Sure. So um, it's it's kind of a hard question, um, not uh, because. When we talk about solidarity, it's not something that's a kind of John Paul II says it's not a vague feeling of con compassion, but he, he calls it a virtue um, with firm commitment to the common good. And so what basically that means, you know, virtues are not feelings. Virtues are something that are practiced. Um, and so when when you have a virtue as a person, it means you kind of have a habit of practicing that virtue. So for us to for us to be in solidarity, 
it, it does actually mean doing things right and 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 probably something beyond um, changing your Facebook profile picture not that there's anything wrong with that but you know what does that accomplish mm-hmm. um, so there's there are things that we can do um, I, I do feel though many of us especially here in the United States are not in a position to kind of do kind of direct aid because we're not we're not there receiving the refugees in person um, but we can potentially financially support organizations that are um, whether uh, here at St. Meinrad, um, we are working with some passionist uh, fathers in Poland and um, taking up collections, sending money their way. Um, and so there are things financially that we can do. Uh, we can obviously pray as well. That's a very important spiritual work of mercy. Um, for is prayer, you know, praying for the dead, but also praying for the living, the refugees who are who are still experiencing this. Um, so. Uh, the bottom line is that we need to be thinking about the things we can actually do and, and, and practicing solidarity. Yeah, absolutely. You, uh, you stole my thunder there a little bit in that response. Uh, you mentioned John Paul II um, and his his discussion about uh, solidarity. He mentioned uh, uh, in his encyclical Solicitudo Rei Socialis, you know, he touched on solidarity um, and he said that, like you, you know, like you just mentioned, it's not a feeling of vague compassion or shallow distress at the misfortunes of so many people, both near and far. On the contrary, it's a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good. That is to say, to the good of all and of each individual, because we're all really responsible for all. And I think that really flows into everything that you've been saying. But I want to mention a couple things here. First, you know, it seems that JP2 is saying that solidarity is more... Uh, you know, is, is more than just kind of, you know, sitting on your couch, watching the TV, watching these horrible images and being like, oh man, I really feel bad for that, you know, that, that poor child who we see in the bomb shelter and in, in, in the, you know, in the subway tunnels or, you know, I feel bad. And then you get up and you go about your day. That's not solidarity for John Paul. Um, you know, it's more than those vague feelings of sadness for what's happening. Um, and, you know, second, John Paul mentions um, that solidarity you know, in that statement is about is about people both near and far. So if solidarity is more than just that shallow distress and more of just uh, a pouring out of oneself for the good of the individual, how am I supposed to do that for the 40 million Ukrainians, the people caught up in the coup, you know, in Myanmar, the mass shooting that took place in California just the other day, um, the victims of Boko Haram, those in the Tigray region of Ethiopia where horrendous tragedy is taking place. Um, you know, it's exhausting. It's exhausting thinking about, you know, all of these these issues that are going on in the world. But, you know, all, I feel like all I can do is have these vague feelings of distress. You know, but beyond that, there are those people who are right next to us, too, in our home communities that are struggling. Like I know back at home, and I'm sure it's similar down in, in, in Mobile, down in Montgomery, down in the Auburn area. People who are struggling with methamphetamine, um, you know, opioid addiction. Um, people are dealing with abuses at home you know, rampant poverty, um, you know, and the sudden loss of, you know, a, a family member, somebody who was, you know, bringing in most of the financial contributions to their family, um, the sudden loss of that, and that's, that puts them in an awkward situation. And this is all back home, right next door. These are our neighbors. I know a few years ago we had a, um, we had a conversation with someone who works for, I think it was CASA. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Um, they came in and we're talking about kind of our area here at St. Minard. We're in a very rural area, a very poor community, a very um, uh, poor county here in southern Indiana, 
that um, and she was talking about the struggles that, you know, that, you know, just our neighbors have our children, the children who are nearby are having. So I, I suppose what I'm asking, uh, I suppose what I'm asking here is, you know, what is our responsibility? You know, with so much happening at home, with so much happening in the world, all those things that I mentioned, plus more that we haven't even heard about, I realized that I, you know, I can't do everything. I can't be everywhere. I don't have an infinite amount of money to put into people's pockets. You know, what, what should my focus be? Well, um, Thomas Aquinas says that prudence is the chariot of the virtues. So uh, I think we can kind of look at things from a high level and certainly one one nation being invaded by another nation and the humanitarian crisis that's that's a very big deal um and so i would say that that rises to the level um, that we really need to consider doing something whether that's again it's hard for any of us uh, across an ocean to do anything kind of directly um and and not everybody is in a financial position to donate a lot of money to to the organizations that are doing relief um so prudentially um prayer is always a good is always a good thing to do um but for smaller things and more local things i would say just through prudence we have kind of more responsibility you know if your next door neighbor loses their house to a fire um it's going to be much more your responsibility to help them than it is one random family on the other side of the world because you're the one who knows them has a relationship with them knows what their needs are um so i i think prudence again is is kind of the controlling virtue here of uh of where we, where our focus needs to be because yeah i mean the the connectivity that we have and the bad news that comes across i mean you know if it if it bleeds it leads right so we're aware of a lot of suffering in the world but we're not always in a position to do anything about it um, physically, that is. Um, so I think what we should do, um, especially when we see those those bad headlines, say a prayer. If there's something we need to consider doing, let's consider doing it. But I think a lot of those um, kind of well-meaning intentions and that, that desire and that drive to, to reduce suffering in the world and to, to be a blessing to people— um, I think a lot of that has a kind of a very local, uh, you know, avenue that that can go down. So um, that can that can mean trying to combat the kind of the, the scourge of homelessness in our own communities or or kind of brokenness that we see in our, our family and friends. So, yeah, it, we, we do need to be paying attention to the news. We do need to be looking at the headlines and seeing what's going on in the world um, and giving fair consideration to what we can do. You know, maybe if a family, a refugee family knocks on our door, that's a little bit different than if they're the closest one is, uh, you know, 3000 miles away. Right. Yeah. So, well, I think there was a good example that was actually happened back in your diocese many, many years ago. Father, uh, Father Andrew Jones, who was ordained, what, three or four years ago from here, he's stationed at a, a really special parish in the diocese, in the Archdiocese of Mobile, that had a lot of history, and that really, I think, points. Um, th sorry to, spread this, uh, to spring this on you. I just thought of it, but um, it, it kind of makes me think of of solidarity in action. And I know it's a little bit bigger profile, but it was kind of, um, kind of, I think, would be a good example of the sol solidarity at a local area. Can you tell us a little bit about his yeah. uh, his parish? So you're referring to um, St. Jude Parish, or yeah. the city of St. Jude, right. um, which was uh, started, I believe, in the 1930s by Father Harold Purcell. Um, 
And at the time, uh, you know, this is before the Civil Rights Act. Um, there's still segregation. This is before the bus boycott. Um, things are tough in the South to be uh, an African-American person. Absolutely. Um, and and this was this is the toughest time, um, you know, post-slavery. Um, and so this community started and it, it was started with the intention of, of truly kind of being a city within a city. It's, it sits on, I believe about 40 acres in downtown Montgomery, which is a pretty, pretty sizable chunk of real estate, um, right off interstate 65 there. And, um, it has, I, I visited that parish just in December, beautiful parish community, the most welcoming, friendliest people. You, I, I would put them. I would, I would put them against anyone in terms of kind of welcoming and, and just, just outstanding community. Um, and they, they have a truly very special parish, a very special community, which has a lot of history in it. Um, that, 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 those grounds I mentioned, the forty acres, that was actually the final campsite uh, from the march from Selma to Montgomery um, to kind of uh, lobby for for civil rights, for equal protection. Um, so that was a huge event. Uh, the campers marched there or stayed there the night before they, um, walked those last few blocks up to the state Capitol on Dexter Avenue. And, um, it was a big event. It was a big event. The national guard was there, had to be there to protect the marchers. Um, really a huge turning point in the civil rights movement. And that was, there was a reason that they stayed there. There was nowhere else that that would allow them to come in. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And, and actually they, they got a lot of criticism even from some Catholics. Mm. Um, they have a little kind of museum or interpretive center there on the, on the campus. Um, also doubles as the parish hall. Mm. And one of the things they have on display is some of the letters that people wrote to father Purcell. Um, very, very angry for allowing the marchers to stay there. Mm. Um, so this is something that was controversial even amongst Catholics at the time. Um, yeah, there's all, all sorts of criticisms and, um, critiques of that decision to allow the marchers to, to, to camp there overnight. So I really think the city of St. Jude is a, is a great example of, of the solidarity that we've been talking about that interconnectedness among just individual human beings dealing with that, that human dignity that, that we all have from being in the image and likeness of God and, and, and really paying attention to the needs of those who are around us, um, especially something as significant as that, those who are marching, you know, for their rights, for their, for their dignity to be seen among all of those in the United States. And, um, that was very important. So I, I just thought that that was a, a great example, um, of the solidarity we we're talking about. Thomas, I really, really, really appreciate you, um, indulging me, letting me, um, ask you a bunch of probing questions. And then I also thank you for letting me hijack, um, uh, our assignment opportunity to, to record, uh, to record an episode of Theo now. Um, so thank you so much for being with me. Um, thank you for, um, honestly just being a great friend and a great, um, a, a great, um, fellow classmate who's journeying together along with me. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I mean, it's been an honor. It's been my pleasure to do this. Uh, I've kind of been hoping to do this with you for a little while now. So it's, um, it's nice to, to, to bring that, um, you know, prayers for a good grade on this assignment. Amen. Uh, Dr. Shemini, if you're listening. <laughs> and uh, no, I, I just appreciate your friendship and our discussions. And um, 
and what the future in store has, you know, has in store for us. I'm very excited for that. So thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Thomas. And to all those listening, thank you for listening to another episode of Theo Now. Um, we should have another episode coming up shortly. It will probably be another one from uh, from the summer of 2020 when I was uh, talking to a few guys back then. So pay attention, keep your ears on, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.